Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone with a bias against people who say, I don't see race, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jennifer Eberhard, a professor at Stanford University's Department of Psychology. She studies the consequences of the psychological association between race and crime and has written a book called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Jennifer, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. Do you want to call you professor? No, no that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I can't if you like because I try to give everyone the titles they deserve. So this is a wider ranging book that you're mm-hmm. talking about, but I wanted to focus in on tech. But I want to first talk a little about your background and how you got to this topic and why you decided to write this book. So why don't we start with a little bit about you? How did you get into writing about this topic? Well, I mean, I feel like we're living through difficult times now as yeah. a country. Um, the uh, Pew Research Center just released a report just recently, which they found that six in 10 Americans feel like race relations are generally bad mm-hmm. in this country. And a majority of Americans feel like things are getting worse. And so we're really struggling, you know, with these issues right now. And I wrote the book to, to speak to that struggle. So tell me how you got there. You, how did you get to study this topic? You're a professor at Stanford. And how did you get to that spot? Well, I've been interested in issues of, of bias, issues of race and inequality since I was a little kid, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I grew up in Cleveland in an all-black neighborhood. And when I was 12 years old, my parents announced we were moving uh, to an all-white um, sub- suburb called mm-hmm. Beachwood that was uh, you know, near um, the, the other place. I mean, it was actually just a bike ride away, but mm-hmm. a world of difference Absolutely. in terms of resources and so forth. And, and it's just a highway. Or a yeah, it, it's, it's definitely true. So, I, yeah, so... I think since that time, it, it just, uh, you know, raised a lot of questions for me, and um, and I never stopped asking those questions, basically. And, and so, but you're studying from a psychology point of view. There's all kinds of ways to study this, uh, mm-hmm. social science, things like that. Uh, you wanted to get at the heart of what causes bias and mm-hmm. and tell some of the stories around it. How did you, how did you get to Stanford? You studied and then... Yeah, well, I, I came to Stanford from Yale. I had been mm-hmm. there for a few years, and my husband and I came together. He was uh, starting out as a professor in the law school, and mm-hmm. so we're both there, and we raised our children, you know, there and 
all of that. So I, we moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, basically, because of, you know, the wonderful, I guess, opportunities that Stanford provided Absolutely. for the for the two of us. So you're also coming here at a time when tech has sort of amplified. I've always talked about weaponizing and amplifying a lot of bad feelings, all, mm-hmm. all kinds of different things in society and sort of fracturing it a lot. And uh, racial issues have been at the top of that list. But yeah. let's talk a little bit about what you, how do you define when you're saying biased and when you're, you say biased, uncovering the hidden prejudice that shapes what we see, think and do. Mm-hmm. I've seen it not hidden. You know, right. I talk about they talk about in Silicon Valley, you know, unconscious bias. Right. I think it's entirely conscious in a lot of ways. Talk a little bit about how you define it. How do you think about the topic overall? Well, you know, this sort of unconscious bias, or some people call it implicit bias, Mm -hmm. can be defined as the beliefs and feelings we have about social groups that can influence our decision-making and our actions, even when we're not aware of it. So that's the key, is that it could be something that you're acting on, something that's really affecting you and guiding your behavior without you actually being aware Mm -hmm. that, you know, that there's a bias there that is influencing what you think think and what mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. So so that's what we're talking about. You're saying that you feel like it's entirely conscious. I, well, I, I, think I think the awareness of sitting around a table with people that are so homogeneous and not noticing it seems hard to believe sometimes, and, and at least in tech. But we'll get to tech in a minute. Okay. But when you're talking about what you are trying to study here is uncovering where it comes from. So why don't you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how you look at it from your study point of view? Right. So from a psychological point of view, I'm sort of interested in looking at sort of multiple sources uh, Mm -hmm. for it. And so one source just has to do with how our brains function, how we're wired. And so bias is is kind of an outgrowth of that. So we are built, our brains are built to categorize and we categorize all kinds of things, including people. And Mm -hmm. so we develop these social categories that we slot people in. And once we have those categories developed, we, you know, develop uh, beliefs and feelings about, you know, those people right, in sure. those categories. And so that's called bias, right? right. And, and that bias can then affect what we do and affect our, our decision making. So so part of it is just has to do with wiring. And, and we're wired in that way because, you know, we are constantly sort of confronting, you know, all kinds of things and overload of stimuli out in the world. Patterns, and right. yeah, yeah, we have to figure out a way to do pattern matching. We have to figure out a way to categorize things so mm-hmm. that we can manage it. Uh, better and the world becomes more predictable and so forth and so there's a uh, utility to it if you will but uh, that categorization so if it was like car tree that kind of right thing, exactly right? or danger or fire or something like that that makes a lot more sense than people but right but it's people do- I mean it's not like we have a different way right. of dealing you know with people right. I mean it's this, the same brain, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're looking for shortcuts everywhere we, we can. And so categorization is a shortcut. Stereotyping is a shortcut. It's something that's seen as sort of basic and it's universal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, most researchers believe that, you know, regardless of the, the country, regardless of the culture, you know, that, that people categorize, right? And they stereotype other groups and the groups might change, that the actual social groups that you're, you know, that are present in that space might change. And then also the stereotypes that you have about them may change, but right. the act of stereotyping is something that's considered uh, fairly basic. 
fairly basic among everybody. Yeah, yeah. But the content of those stereotypes can shift quite a bit. And a lot of that has to do with the disparities that are out there in, in our society. And so we're exposed to those disparities. We develop, you know, associations between certain groups and certain types of jobs and, you know, that kind of thing, or having certain, you know, uh, traits. So that is something that is more culturally specific. And that can do uh, a lot of harm. Right. Talk a little bit about some of the major themes you think are important to think about when you're thinking about it, because I think it does apply. The reason I think it's important in tech, you have things like facial recognition coming, you have social media, which has bias, mm-hmm. things like services that have bias, Airbnb, Nextdoor, things like right. that. Can you put it in a bigger, con- the idea of bias in a bigger context? You're initially saying this is something people just do for comfort's sake or to make sense of the world they live in. Yeah, it's something they do to, to function in the world, function, really. Right, yeah. um, you know, so, for example, you can develop, say, an association between, um, you know, African-Americans and crime. So mm-hmm. this is something that I look at a lot and right. done a number of studies on. And that um, association can uh, lead you to um, see weapons more clearly. For example, mm-hmm. if you just expose someone to an African-American face, uh, a blurry image of a gun becomes more clear to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can also... You know, just like you can uh, develop more clarity from that, it can also blind you to certain things. And mm-hmm. so these biases can actually influence something as basic as what you see, but they can also influence how you treat people. They can also influence, you know, whether, you know, teachers are going to discipline a, a child mm-hmm. in, in school. It can influence whether you get hired, whether you get promoted. It can influence uh, jurors in, in death penalty decisions, mm-hmm. all kinds of things in life. And so, and it can do so in ways that that sometimes are beneath your awareness and, and sometimes, you know, can lead to great harm. So talk about the ones that are these hidden beneath your awareness. How does that happen from a psychological point of view? So you have associations that can get activated. So the association between African-Americans and crime, for Mm -hmm. example, might be an association that people know about, that they're aware of, but they're not always aware of how that association is influencing um, how they're making decisions Mm -hmm. about various things. So it's baked in and they don't know it's baked in there. Exactly. They're applying it and they don't know that they're applying it, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing. They can think that they're acting in a way that's completely fair. You know, they can also not be motivated at all to act in a way that's unfair, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their intentions might be good, but then you can still be influenced. So how do you realize that, realize these hidden prejudices and then get rid of them? Because presumably what happens is then someone points them and says, just like right now, lately, I'm not racist. Right. And then racist actions happen. Right. How do you uncouple those. Yeah, it's hard because it's one of those things when it becomes hidden, it's mm-hmm. it's hidden, you know, not only to the the person who might hold the bias mm-hmm. and be acting on it, but it also can be hidden to the target of bias. And so right. it makes it especially, you know, difficult uh, to untangle. And that's one of the reasons that we as uh, social scientists, we like to study this in a controlled way in a laboratory sometimes so we can we can rule out, you know, all these other factors that it could be like you could, you know, have made some decision that you've made based on all kinds of non-racial reasons, right? right? And it may seem reasonable. uh, But then we can notice, you know, in these studies, a a pattern develop uh, where, you know, okay, for the African-Americans in the same situation, you're evaluating them in a more negative way or, you Mm -hmm. know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we can uh, look at how these biases can kind of take shape, accounting for all these other, you know, sort of differences in a, a situation that people can point to to say, 
say, well, my behavior is really motivated by X or Y or, or whatever it is that, that has nothing to do with race. Right. And so when you have a situation like that, when you have these hidden biases that shape first what we see, because uh-huh. then we – I always there was an expression that was used for me, believe what you see, don't see what you believe. Believe what you actually see versus mm-hmm. – just what you think you see. And so I think it's a really – it struck me at the time when I heard it. It was an editor who was giving me that advice in terms of reporting mm-hmm. because a lot of people go into reporting with a – deciding what the story is before right. it's, you know, not seeing what actually is happening. Right. How do you push against that? Because it seems like you're talking about sort of an innate human trait to do these things. Well, that's the thing, you know, about bias. I, I, I feel like when you say that it, it's it's something that, that we do as mm-hmm. humans, it's sort of part of how we function. I don't think that. I think it's on, on purpose. But okay. <laughs> well, it's both, right. right? Again, it makes it hard to fight it, too. But um, I think the issue is is that when bias is conscious, um, you kind of know, you know what you know and you sort of think what you think, right? And you feel what you feel. And mm-hmm. so you're, it's, it's on the table. And so uh, you might argue with a person about whether it's right or wrong, but then, you know, they say, well, you know, this is my belief, you know, about Mm -hmm. this uh, certain group, or this is how I feel about this certain group. The issue that gets stickier is um, if those associations that you've picked up out in the world, say, about African Americans and crime, again, since we're Mm -hmm. talking about that, that they start to influence you in ways where you can't actually detect it. And so Mm -hmm. you, you think that, oh, well, how I'm thinking or how I'm feeling is just um, kind of the way th- things right. are, right? right? Right. So I, I'm, I'm. So it's not the thing that you were talking about earlier, where believing is seeing. Mm-hmm. They believe that they're seeing uh, what's the there, what's right. what's present. Present. Yeah. So fast forward to today, right now, one of the things you're talking about was the idea that it's really things have gotten worse, or people feel they've worse, and it does. I think most mm-hmm. people do. Why do you think that is now? I want to get into the next section talking about tech because I think it has to do with proliferation of social media and everything else. But why do you imagine? Because this has been around for a long time, these issues. What well, has I happened? Think, I think, what has changed? I, well, I think the worry is that things are more polarized mm-hmm. than they used to be. And I think people are worried about um, our norms shifting. Mm-hmm. And so we used to have a, these egalitarian norms, and we were really proud of that as Americans and so forth. Well, and, alleged egalitarian uh, uh, norms. Right. <laughs> I mean, so this was the ideal. I, yeah. I'm not sort of saying we always reached that ideal, certainly, but um, it certainly was a, was a norm that people valued. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think people worry that that's eroding, uh, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that is something that isn't, um, it doesn't define us as Americans even mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I think that's um, part of the issue because um, once the norms start to go, then our behavior can follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, and our behavior can follow that even when we sort of pride ourselves on it being egalitarian uh, mm-hmm. because we're social creatures and the social environment that we, we're in matters. And so, even if we see ourselves as egalitarian and we're in a situation, we're in an environment that is less so, we become less so, you know, right. over time. Right. And so I think that's the concern is this kind of fight over who we are um, as as Americans and what we should be trying to uphold, even mm-hmm. if we don't always uh, make it there. Um, th- this idea that, you know, this is something to strive for, that it, when once that starts to erode, then people and get worried. And why now do you feel it started to erode? Where do, where are we at, at, at currently in this 
Yeah. So, you know, uh, this is the other thing about bias is that it's not something. So we're all vulnerable to bias. Right. Right. But it's not something that we're acting on all the time. Um, So there are situations that can trigger it and there are situations that can kind of keep it at bay. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of things that are happening in the world now where, um, you know, we're triggered uh, by that bias more than we used to be. For example, again, you know, the, the changing or the eroding of the egalitarian norms. That's a worry. That's an issue. That's a so. That's a situational trigger, you know, of bias. I think also, um, you know, people are feeling under threat. Uh, people are fearful. Uh, people are stressed, you know. So even our emotional states can uh, make it more likely uh, mm-hmm. that we will act on on bias. When people are worried about, you know, their status in the world and so forth, whether, you know, they're going to be able to maintain their way of life and the way of life that they want for their children and so forth, um, that tends to lead to more bias. And so there are lots of of um, factors that are, you know, right. you know, conditions of the world that are pushing us in in, in this direction. How do you unpush it? Because you, you've got a president who is saying things that now people are calling racist, for example, mm-hmm. which is bias. Bias is a loaded word. Racist is the most loaded word. Mm-hmm. It, it, not even loaded. It's what it is. Right. How do you, when you're in that environment, when that happens, and then people are arguing over it, right. how, how do you remove yourself from it? How do you get out of that? I mean, the thing that's interesting to me about that is that it also shows what's explicit versus implicit bias, that that's also shifting, too. The line is blurring. The Mm -hmm. line is shifting. Well, it's all explicit. Yeah. Well, things that we used to think about as, like, explicit, and we would all agree, okay, that's blatant, that's explicit. Now we're arguing about whether it is. And so that's what I mean by the line is is blurring, because for some people, they don't think the things that we thought about as explicit bias, for them, it's more implicit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's it's hidden from them, even though it's not hidden from other people. Right. And so when that starts to happen, you know, th- that can set the stage or make more permissible all kinds of things that uh, weren't permissible before. And that means everyone can be biased and yeah. be proud of it. And they they don't have to worry. There's no yes. tension around it. You you right. can There's still no be. Shame to it. You There's don't no. have the shame. You don't, you can still be a good person and upstanding and all of this and still act out in this way because now you don't define this as as bias anymore. Right, because it just is the way I think. Yeah, that's what I think. Right, right. Which is so. What as it's, when you're studying that is this a phenomenon that's new or or something that's historical? It goes through cycles where people do this. It's one of those things where it's not new in the sense that, you know, it's the same social conditions that have gotten us where we are now, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're asking whether threat has always been a trigger for bias, I mean, I, I think threat has been a trigger for bias mm-hmm. and the nature of that threat and, you know, what's producing the threat might uh, change across time. But threat makes us a lot more vulnerable to bias than if we're not threatened. Right. And that's the case for a lot of these triggers, too. Triggers right now. Yeah. Okay. When we get back, we're here with uh, Jennifer Eberhardt. She's a professor at Stanford University's Department of Psychology. Her new book is called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. 
Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Jennifer Eberhardt. She's a professor at Stanford University's Department of Psychology. Her book is called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. A lot of people feel that social media, like myself, has weaponized and amplified a lot of what's going on. And there's so many different areas right now in tech that are hitting these problems in different ways. One is artificial intelligence, which I think a lot of people feel is going to solidify the already putting in bad data into this to Mm -hmm. create more feelings of uh, misrepresenting who is committing crimes and who's responsible for them. So putting data into a place where it's impossible to figure out how they come to conclusions. Right. So AI is one. One is facial recognition, which I think there's all kinds of controversies around that. Right. Um, in the silliest ways in terms of how pictures are taken, which are, you know, how picture, how they design things, to the more serious ones is that identifying people mm-hmm. incorrectly. Right. Just recently with Amazon and their uh, recognition software identified members of Congressional Black Caucus as felons or things like that. And then there's the social media itself, which is used by especially Donald Trump and some others as a a weapon now in that regard. Among these, when you're studying bias and the links between race and how people put the links between race and crime, which one do you fear most to to be abused or do you just fear all of them are yeah, I mean, I, I feel like uh, there are a lot of <laughs> there's a lot to uh, feel worried about mm-hmm. now. Actually, it's interesting too because it's also another example of how you know a bias can kind of uh, migrate to different spaces, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have an online space before, right? right? And so you know, all the problems that we have out in the world and in society, mm-hmm. you know, make their way, you know, online. Except and, it's worse because it's anonymous. It's yeah, loud. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's broadcast. It, it is. And, and you're kind of encouraged to respond to that without thinking and to respond quickly and all of that. Th- that's another condition under which bias is most likely to be triggered is when you're forced to um, make decisions fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't sort of sit back and think about different. Twitchy. Yeah. And tech encourages that. I mean, in tech, speed is, you know, is is king. People um, are trying to develop tech products that can be used in really sort of straightforward ways, simple ways. You can, you know, use it quickly, uh, intuitively. You don't have to think. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the very conditions under which um, bias is more likely to come alive. And so that's a problem. So let's talk about each of them. Uh, artificial intelligence. Obviously, they're going to input data that is going to create a whole new set of data of where crimes might happen, what kind of people might are likely to 
putting crimes. But the whole worries around this is the first, the designers of these systems are largely white men, essentially. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the data they're putting in there is old data that's generated badly. Right. Um, how do you how do you weed that out, or is it impossible to do so? Well, I mean, I think one of the issues is not just that there's a lack of diversity in terms of like ethnic diversity and who's mm -hmm. developing the algorithms, but there's also a lack of diversity in terms of the background that people have, the disciplines that they come from, the, right. their areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. And so if you have only people who are from a you know tech world who are developing algorithms that, you know, um, are speaking to, you know, issues of, you know, criminal justice or education or housing or you know, all these, you know, different uh, areas or, or issues in the workplace and so forth. And you only have sort of one sort of way to, to think about that. And you don't even have training, actually, to understand uh, the historical realities of the inequality. You don't actually, you know, conduct research on, on these kinds of mm -hmm. issues to try to understand, you know, what the sources of that inequality might be and so forth. And so you can take data that um, is, you know, has you know bad data, basically, right. and, and you can... Dirty data. Yeah, okay, dirty data and bake that in and, and further the problem rather than um, alleviate the problem that you're, um, you know, that you're seeking to address. And so, so yeah. So, so and that's then it an confirms issue. biases. By it does, and it can make that worse, right? Because the now, computer said it. Right, right. It's a machine. It's not a human. And so, therefore, you know, we're doing everything right. Everything's clean, uh, mm -hmm. right? And so that helps people to think, okay, well, now we really don't have to think about this issue anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, yeah, th those are all real worries. So what about facial recognition, the idea of being memorialized in a, in a digital way? So first of all, I used to study, um, well, I guess I still do study face recognition uh, among humans, mm -hmm. right? And so with that work, we're, we look at something called the other race effect. And mm -hmm. this is this idea that people are much better at recognizing faces of their own race than they are at recognizing faces of other races. And that has been examined in the context of criminal justice for eyewitness testimony. Mistaken identity. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you, you sort of look at people who've been, you know, who are on death row even, who get exonerated. Rated, you know, a lot of that um, at the center of the case is an eyewitness who thought they saw this person and so forth. But you also have an issue with, the, you know, machines doing this, right? Mm -hmm. that, that the machines aren't as good at, at recognizing faces uh, from members of certain groups and other groups. And so if that's the case, then, you know, there are all kinds of problems that could arise from that. For example, like if you, you know, have, you know, this face recognition technology that, you know, law enforcement officers are using. And um, using it badly, I mean, yeah. not using it correctly. Right, right. You can stop people and sort of think, you know, this person matches the description and, and it's not that person. And, you know, th that and that has to do with the um, how uh, we develop the technology and what faces, um, you know, right. you train on right. and so forth. Right. You In a review in The Times, it said, uh, Eberhardt gives striking examples from her research of how racial categories and stereotypes affect perception. In one study, she and her colleagues found that people's brains are more active when they're looking at the face from someone in their own racial group. This, Eberhardt says, helps to explain why people sometimes do poorly or recognize individuals from other groups of finding that matters for criminal justice where mistaken identity is common. Right. Right. Um, in another study, Eberhardt examined the stereotype linking black men in crime. Police were often asked to look at a computer screen. Half were exposed subliminally to crime-related words like apprehend and capture. Uh, those blink for a fraction of a second. The other half were exposed to gibberish. The officers then saw two, uh, two faces side by side, one black, one white. The officers who were primed to think about crime 
looked more at the blackface. That's right. Explain that, why you did it that way. Well, because we wanted to um, really explore how deep uh, these associations go. And so um, th- that you can have this association between blackness and crime that is so strong, that's so powerful mm-hmm. that it is um, you have directing. To pick them. Yeah, yeah, you're directing, it's directing your eyes um, as to what to look at out in the world, right? Also, once you, you know, look at an object, like I, I said before, even a, you know, a blurry image of a gun can become more clear if you've just been exposed to an African-American face. And so that's power. It has to be right? a gun, right? Yeah. It has to be a gun, you're saying, in other words. Well, you 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 just you just you, you have a you see the gun faster, mm-hmm. uh, be, so it lowers your threshold for kind of understanding you know sort of what's a gun and what's not a gun. Mm-hmm. So it, it shows us that um, you know these associations can influence uh, you know what we see in in these real literal ways. Right. And then you also notice the same stereotype she discovered affects perceptions of physical movement, analyzing the data from a New York City police department. Eberhardt learned that black men were far more likely than white men to have been stopped for engaging in what's called furtive movement, suspicious behavior like fidgeting with someone, something at your waistline, yet among those stopped, whites more often had a weapon. Yeah, actually, we found uh, that only 1% of the people stopped for furtive movement actually had a weapon. So it's really low, um, you know, hit rate there. Right. And a lot of that has to do with just the the fact that furtive movement is a subjective uh, standard that they're using to stop people, right? Uh, It was hard for the department to um, actually define what furtive movement was, and that that led— We just um, know when we see it. Yeah, right. right, That led officers, yeah, to to kind of come up with their own definitions, and and those definitions can also differ depending on, you know, what area of the city you're in and who you're looking at and so forth. And so now they have eliminated that as an option on the form that they complete when they make a stop. So Mm -hmm. You can no longer stop someone for furtive movement alone. Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of stops were huge. I mean, during the height of stop and frisk in 2010, mm-hmm. there were about 600,000 stops. Of, of These were all pedestrian stops on the streets of New York City. Over 300,000 of those stops were for furtive movement. So mm-hmm. it, like, it was like it, it was by far the number one reason people were being stopped on, mm-hmm. on the streets of New York, even though it's hard to actually define what furtive movement means. Right, right, absolutely. So when you enter, when you add sensors and cameras into the situation, mm-hmm. it gets even worse. Presumably, cameras are supposed to be eventually be able to say what's furtive, right? I've no, there's a lot more. For example, when you get on a plane now, they take your picture. They're looking at your face and figuring out whether you're going to hijack the plane or just be difficult in coach or whatever, whatever they're trying to look for. Um, how do you, how does that, is that a better thing if the computers are doing it or not? Well, it all depends on how they're, how it's being used, right? right. Um, and so the whole thing also with the body-worn cameras, mm-hmm. for example, since mm-hmm. you mentioned cameras for police, you know, that can be used in a way where, you know, okay, uh, we'll have this camera. You can um, stop people and, you know, look at their face and see if it mat- if that face matches some uh, um, face of a wanted criminal in the mm-hmm. database. So it could be used in that way. Or or it could be used um, in, in a way where you're trying to improve police community interactions. You're trying to understand what happens during those interactions 
happens um, when things go awry? What is the, the cause of that? Um, how can you use language? So we've, um, for example, with researchers at Stanford, we've um, begun to uh, look at the language that police officers use during routine traffic stops. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we use body-worn camera footage to uh, allow us a window into, you know, into those stops. And mm-hmm. we found, you know, that, you know, officers are professional overall. This is in Oakland, um, mm-hmm. actually, California. So, uh, but but there's a, a race difference um, where they treat white drivers with uh, more respect uh, through yeah, their language than, than, than black drivers. I, someone did, did an art project on this where they just played the sounds and what, how they spoke to uh, African-Americans stopped, which mm-hmm. the words were more diminutive, yeah. disrespectful, and the words to white motorists were sir, ma'am. Right. It was really interesting. Yeah, and for black motorists, it was, you know, bro and dude and and those kinds of things that didn't happen with white motorists. Right. So so these technologies should presumably be able to show people the bias in order to fix it if they see, oh, look what I just did. But that's the opposite seems to have happened. No one can agree on what they're seeing, which is pretty clear. You'd think technology would help. It's like, look what just happened. Well, seeing is subjective, right. right? And that's what we were talking about before right. the whole believing is seeing. It's not mm-hmm. like it's just our own histories, our own beliefs uh, influence what we see and how we see. And that's the whole point of those studies we were just talking about where you can, you know, um, you know, sh- prompt uh, police officers to think of apprehend and capture and arrest. And, and, and that directs their eyes towards uh, black faces, mm-hmm. uh, right? Or, or the blurry image of the gun, the fact that an African-American face can lead you to see that um, mm-hmm. that gun sooner. So, so those are examples of how this tight association we have between blackness and crime can mm-hmm. influence what we see. Even you if know, there's absolute proof. Exactly. Uh, amazing. I remember yeah. the videos came out of all the various videos that were happening of killings of, mm-hmm. of motorists by police. Mm-hmm. And I had at least three people say, well, it's not clear what happened there. I'm like, oh, it's clear. Like, I, it was fascinating. Yeah. And I was like, I sort of, it was sort of the beginning of this entire Trump era, and it was really interesting because I was sort of like, it's actually right there. Right. Even not just what you see, but again, what you look at, like mm-hmm. um, what you're focused on when you're looking at one of these viral mm-hmm. videos of mm-hmm. an officer involved shooting, for mm-hmm. example you know, what you're looking at and what you're looking for and Mm -hmm. if there's something ambiguous, how you interpret that and so forth, all that varies. So more data doesn't help people become less biased. Well, I think data can help, but I don't think data resolves everything. Yeah, I, I think, you know, sometimes... You need more than that. And I think the, the same is true for there's a push in California, for example, to, mm-hmm. um, you know, ha- it's a, actually a statewide mandate now, right, that uh, police officers um, record uh, information about who they're stopping. Right. right? So uh, the, the race of the person, the gender, you know, and the idea is that. Look um, what you're doing. Yeah, that you can have this data now and you could see whether there are racial disparities in stops and racial disparities in searches and arrests and so forth. Forth, right, right. Um, but people can look at the same data differently, right? So collecting that data alone um, is 
isn't going to like resolve the problem, right? Because you know some people will look at that data and say, well, you know this shows that there's bias and that we need police reform. And then other people can look at that same data and and say, well, it doesn't show bias at all. Um, you know, police officers are are just are, doing their job. They're doing their job and they're stopping the people who are committing crime. And if there are racial disparities in who commits crime, then you would expect that. You know, and so you can again, you have the same data, uh, right. but a huge disagreement uh, about how to see that data. So you, so you need more than data. I don't think data is worthless, right. uh, so, but it's, it's, a, it's an anchor, uh, right. but it's not the, you know, it's not going to, you know, completely resolve things for every question. So you're going to explain to me next in the next section how we're going to resolve things completely. <laughs> we're if you don't mind, if we can't use data or video or sensors or anything else, how we do that. We're here with Jennifer Eberhardt. He's a professor at Stanford University's Department of Psychology. Her book is called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. We're here with Jennifer Eberhardt. She's a professor at Stanford University who's written a book called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Jennifer, when you're talking about this, so if, you, if data doesn't work necessarily or cameras or sensors or tech, how do you solve the problem? Because it seems like it's only getting worse because on social media, that, as you said, it's twitchy. It creates that. It it, it, it separates people. Mm-hmm. People thought it was going to bring people together so people would see each other more clearly. Right. And that was the intention, right? right. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, for a lot of these um, sort of tech products. I think right. that was the intention. Yeah. Commonality. For, yeah. Yeah. Right. Humanity. Yeah. Right. But no. the intention sometimes is ir- irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a, a problem that's created, you have to sort of focus on what that problem is and how it's being produced regardless of the intention. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the, uh, w- the case for bias too, mm-hmm. right? You can have a bias and you can do something that um, reflects that bias or you can make some decision, right, that's infected by bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and the issue isn't whether you intended it or not. Uh, you know, the, so you, you have to focus on the impact and um, and, and have the, the impact be a motivator for trying to figure out how to correct it. So how is that? How do you do that? Because people, you know, you, for example, in Silicon Valley with hiring, mm-hmm. they're like, it just is that way. It's just there's more of these people than these people. And, and ultimately it leads you to the to their conclusion, which is that they're only young white men can invent things, which is untrue. But that's – they're saying, look, this is only the people – but then you're like, well, you hire them and therefore right. they're able to and therefore – Right. They can't see the whole systemic problem. Yeah. They, yeah. I think it's hard for people to, to see, especially for Americans, to yeah. see things at a systemic level because mm-hmm. we're so um, socialized to sort of think about, um, you know, sort of ourselves as kind of independent spirits and yeah. that we, you know, we, you know, we don't really see the situation um, mm-hmm. that, that people are in as, as much as we just kind of see the behavior as a true reflection sure. of, of the self and the, and the person's desires and intentions. And you so aren't forth. rich because you didn't try hard hard enough. Yeah, you aren't, exactly. You didn't get into college because you weren't smart enough, whatever, whatever that idea right. is. You didn't work hard enough, really, is at the heart of it. Right. So when people see the disparities, um, oftentimes, you know, they interpret those disparities in a way that, um, you know, has to do with, um, you know, how they feel about that group or the associations that they've been, um, you know, sort of that are well practiced uh, about that group. So um, is it healthy? Because you do see it on social media now. People don't hold back anymore. They'll, mm-hmm. you know, they're saying these things out loud, especially yeah. the president and others. And they're using these tools, which are naturally allow people to express themselves 
the id, you know, the id takes over, I guess, yeah. and everything else. How do you solve for that then? Is there is there a hope to get rid of bias entirely or is it just not? Well, I mean, I think you can solve for it in a lot of ways. I mean, like we talked earlier about slowing people down, that mm-hmm. people are more likely to express bias when when they're, they're not thinking and they're just mm-hmm. kind of going on these automatic sort of well-rehearsed, well-practiced associations that they have. Um, you know, and and so they kind of spring to life um, mm-hmm. and influence how people are making decisions and so forth. So I, I'll give you a good example mm-hmm. uh, of this, which is um, next door, right? Right. Um, so this you, is you the have comp- explain the company for people. Yeah. So this is an online platform, right? That was created uh, with the intention of of bringing people together, of making uh, communities. Um, you know, happier and safer and where people could gather um, and share information about their neighborhoods, about their neighborhoods. And Mm -hmm. so it's all kind of neighborhood based. And so, um, you know, really, um, you know, great idea, you know, sort of good intentions Mm -hmm. there, but um, over the back fence kind of thing. Yes. One called back fence that was like that, too. Oh, okay, I didn't know about that. It failed. Um, so anyway, so with with next door, I mean, next door is at, I think in ninety five percent of our neighborhoods in the mm-hmm. U.S. right now, and so um, you know it's spread um, um, quite a bit. And but they had problems sometimes with uh, racial profiling. Right? They did. They've uh, been trying the, to solve those. Right. And so and then how do you solve that? And so um, what it was is there are people allowed to put up videos with their cameras and things like that in a lot of places, and it's always. Black people committing crimes. That's what it. That's what it degenerated into in a lot of neighborhoods. Um, and then the question was whether people were reporting incorrectly or whether they're quoting too much of those or whether that was the real thing. And so it was a big debate around, right. around that. Yeah, the big the debate I heard about um, was some uh, several years ago. Uh, the co-founder of Nextdoor, Sarah Leary, mm-hmm. reached out to me to mm-hmm. ask, well, how do we yes. curb racial profiling on right. the platform? Because that was um, an issue and, and completely, um, you know, this is the opposite of why they right. created. Right, you know, same the thing platform. with Airbnb. Yes, the same thing. Yes. Um, so Which is people didn't want to rent to people of color or that whether we should put pictures on it of people it went on it was like that this is it was a similar issue right similar issue right so so with next door uh they realized you know after talking to me and other people and consulting the literature that if they wanted to um fight racial profiling on the platform that they were going to have to slow people down Right. And right. So, but again, we were just talking earlier about how a lot of tech products are built Speed people so that yeah, you so you so don't how have do to you think. slow so people you, down. In that regard. So what they uh, decided to do was, um, it used to be the case that if you saw someone suspicious, uh, you could just hit the crime and safety tab, and then you could shout out to all your neighbors, suspicious person. Oftentimes, the person who was suspicious was a black man, mm-hmm. and the cases where it was racial profiling, right? This person was doing nothing. Like it right. was furtive movement. That weren't very furtive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just Walk, the, which is called walking, right? <laughs> or just the presence in the, the mostly white community was enough to make right. that person suspicious. It was had nothing to do with any kind of criminal wrongdoing. So that was a problem, right? right. Uh, so they decided to um, slow people down by putting up. Um, a checklist. It's a three-item checklist. Um, and so you have to go through the checklist before you can just shout out to all the neighbors about the suspicious black man, right? Mm-hmm. And the first 
thing on the list is what is it about the person's behavior that is making him suspicious? So mm-hmm. it can't be walking. It can't be walking, or it can't be black man. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of times it was just the social category, and mm-hmm. um, so your social category can't make you suspicious. And right. so they learned that. And then the second thing was to describe um, the, the person in enough detail uh, that you're actually describing that person's individual features rather than simply his social category, which right. often, again, was black male. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third and last thing uh, was um, they gave them a definition of what racial profiling was. And so a lot of people actually didn't know what racial profiling was, nor did they understand that they were engaging in it. So right. just educating people about mm-hmm. what it was and what they were doing, and then letting them know uh, that this is prohibited on the platform. Mm-hmm. So that's getting back to that whole cultural norm thing that right. we talked about earlier. You're setting the cultural norms where you're saying that this is not permissible. Mm-hmm. And so um, they were trying to um, modify. You, you've seen those signs, if you see something, say something. Yeah. So they were trying to modify that so it's if you see something suspicious, say something specific. Uh-huh. So that's what they were going for. And so using this method and trying to slow people down with the checklist, they were able to curb profiling on the website by over 75 percent. Mm-hmm. Which makes for a better experience, correct, for people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, what would happen in those situations is that you would get a lot of incivility, um, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, people kind of end up in shouting matches or something like that. Right. Um, and you're trying to create a product where you're bringing neighbors together um, and, and not uh, polarizing it's a, things. It's an so. interesting thing on Ring, too. Same yeah. thing that's going on on Ring. It's just like a video cavalcade of racism. I just, I can't, it's amazing yeah. when you watch it. Um, yeah, I think people feel like tech is going to solve a lot of our problems and make right. things easier. And then um, in some ways it can, but in some ways it, it raises all these other issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, the bias just you migrates uh, to these other spaces. And especially if we haven't really dealt with <laughs> the issue and we, we don't want to talk about race, we don't want to talk about bias, it can emerge in these other spaces. So first is slow down. Mm-hmm. What else? I think, um, so we talked about furtive movements, mm-hmm. right? So so not using subjective standards to evaluate the behavior of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, so f- this idea of what's furtive and all that was subjective, and it actually led to huge, huge um, racial disparities in who got stopped by the police. And again, so they decided to, to, to take that off the form so that you can't, you know, stop someone uh, based on furtive Just movement you look alone. Sneaky. So that's, that's a, yeah, and that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to... Uh, evaluate others and evaluate yourself, too, on the mm-hmm. basis of objective standards rather than subjective Such standards. Such as changing it to what rather than furtives? To what other reasons? If they have a gun and they're pointing it at someone, yeah. and, you know, so that I mean, be, that I mean that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there, there are other uh, criteria, mm-hmm. um, you know, officers can use to um, mm-hmm. determine whether somebody is um, worthy of, of stopping. Okay, so that and what, what else? I mean, I, I think so. We got speed. We got subjective standards. We got um, also. Um, I think uh, accountability is a big issue. Um, mm-hmm. So bias is more likely to happen when you don't have accountability um, mm-hmm. and you don't have you know m- metrics uh, to actually measure some of the things that you care about. So, for example, I think we started out talking about just you know how. Um, you know, there there's not much diversity in tech at these mm-hmm. tech companies at all, um, and and we we know that uh, uh, partly right because um, a lot of the tech companies have started to it keep take, track yes. of of what they're doing, yeah. and so that 
accountability, like using those metrics so that they're transparent about what's happening is a good thing because it allows us to see how bad the problem is. It allows mm-hmm. them to create goals, you know, for themselves. Of where they, You know, of where they want to be. They're just telling us well, <laughs> well, without the data, you have yeah. nothing, right? Yeah. You, you, it's hard to hold yourself accountable to something that you can't see right. or you don't want to see. Well, you can see it. You just well, you don't, don't want to see it. And, yeah. you, and you don't want to focus on it. Yeah. But, I mean, having those metrics allows, uh, you know, not just them to focus on it, but us as a society to focus on it. Okay, so accountability. I mean, there are a lot of these. I think increasing positive contact across groups, mm-hmm. um, too, is, is, a, is a big one. Um, you know, that's something from... Um, you know, social psychology, we've known for um, many decades now mm-hmm. that um, not, not just ha- bringing people into contact with each other, but establishing the right kind of contact actually can reduce bias. Which um, is, what's the difference between the wrong? Well, you, if you bring people together and they're two different groups, say, and they're of unequal status, that's like uh, not <laughs> the best contact, right? So sometimes uh, if, if it's unequal status or if, you know, it's competitive or mm-hmm. if people like in leadership positions in that context don't you know condone uh, the contact and all of that? That's bad contact, and in in those situations, you can actually make bias worse. It can mm-hmm. you know you I can, knew those people were like that. Yeah, yeah. Now you have proof, right, mm-hmm. that they're you know I actually tried. exactly what you thought they were, and so that can backfire. Um, so it has to be you know equal status contact uh, where it's uh, you know people working together cooperative cooperatively for common goals, and uh, it has to be you know contact that's sanctioned by leadership. And so, you know, there's a, a, lo- a long sort of laundry list of conditions mm-hmm. that make um, contact either bad or good. Right. And then finally, how do you, when you think about all these things, it seems as if we're past a point of no return, but that's probably not the case because we're right in the middle of it, right? It feels yeah. like that. And it does feel like, especially tech creates that situation of people being human. There's no analog contact as much. There's digital contact. And so it's very hard to... Again, it was supposed to bring you together. It brings you apart yeah. because there's no physical contact. There's no physical contact. There's no looking at each other. Right. The anonymity yeah, the is anonymity. huge. And we've yeah. known about that for a while as researchers as well. Anytime it's anonymous, it's ugly. Yeah, it brings out your worst self. Why is that? Well, you know, people are responding to, you know, social norms. They are responding to how they're seen. They're responding to the image of themselves and whether they're going to be uh, liked or shunned and all of this. You don't have those concerns if if, if, yeah. it's, if you're anonymous. People don't know who you are. And yeah. so you're more likely to um, Not sort of respond to shame or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Which is interesting. Although exactly. there's a whole culture of that you shouldn't shame people online. I'm like, well, maybe you should. <laughs> <laughs> but will the shame even work if yeah, it's anonymous? The, I mean, so, that's right. So, if it's anonymous. Yeah, right, it's right, really right. interesting. So uh, lastly, when you think about this idea of bias, what are you studying next? So I'm trying to look at uh, ways that we can use science to help us to understand bias and to help us to mitigate it. And so to that's drugs. What... <laughs> Everybody's on LSD. That's the answer from Silicon Valley in case you're interested. Oh, sure. It gets rid of the ego. You know? And then we're all it. We're all it, I guess. But how do you do that? What is the, how, what do you think? Do you have any clue right now? 
of how you use science to do that? Is that yeah, I mean, I, I think we've talked about some of the clues, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about um, figuring out ways to slow people down so that they don't uh, do these things. And we can do that as individuals ourselves, or we can slow people down in the social environments that we control. So next door, uh, right? Uh, works, yeah. 95% of our communities, and, and now, you know, they've, they have uh, figured out a way to slow people down um, mm-hmm. so that there's less um, profiling. Mm-hmm. So that's huge. Right. And, and I feel like companies have, um, you know, a huge role to play here. I think they have a responsibility, right, in all of this because of the power uh, they wield. I mean, they, they can not just affect one life, but many, many li- yeah. millions of lives. I right. Agree. That that checklist changed the mindset of all of these people now who are mm-hmm. on next door. And so so that's I, I think recognizing that power and marshalling yeah, that they power is like a to, good thing. They don't like to feel like they have impact when they have enormous impact. Which oh, I yes. Think is difficult. Um, one of the things I'm obsessed with is when you, you know, when you fill in a Google box, mm-hmm. if you do black people are, women are, try it sometime. Oh, okay. You won't like it. Oh, well. <laughs> there you go. It's fascinating, the results. And of course, they all say, well, that's what people are searching for. And you're like, yeah, but you can stop them from, right. you know what I mean? Like you can suggest other things. You're kind of aiding and abetting that. Or don't right? say anything so, at all. Don't, right. let, let, don't let people be filled. Don't let anything be filled in. Right. Like it was really, you know. Saying yeah. that's the way people are is sort of like, well, right. people do terrible things to each other. It doesn't right. mean we can't And you're it. giving people a tool for, to right. express that. Exactly. And so do you have some responsibility in that? Is I mean, that's... I know this is going to sound a really crazy question, but is there any good use of bias? Is there any... Is it ever good? Um, categorization, I get. Being uh-huh. able to... This is a car. This is a lion. That's a cat. That's right. Okay. Those are all good things, you know. Well, that's you don't yeah. Get eaten. Those are yeah, and 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 there's bias that comes with that with the cats and the right. lions and all that because once you categorize them, you kind of know um, you, you have some idea about whether they're dangerous, dangerous or um, you should pet them. Yeah, exactly. In that sense, you can say you know stereotyping has a function, right? Mm-hmm. Like once you put people in a category and then you develop beliefs about the people who are in mm-hmm. that or the animals, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who are in that with category. Animals. So that helps you, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it makes things more predictable for you. It, it's um, People talk about stereotyping as an energy-saving device mm-hmm. um, where you don't have to, you know, th- sort of think of everything mm-hmm. that you're confronted with afresh, uh, right? You can think about sort of what kinds of um, things kind of go with um, the animals, say, right. that are in that category. And so it saves us time and mm-hmm. saves us our brain resources. Um, it makes things more predictable. And so there's a function to it. And we have all kinds of biases. We were, we were spending a lot of time here talking about racial bias, right? Mm-hmm. But there's hindsight bias and, you know, there's um, confirmation bias. Right. Wait, what's hindsight bias? It's just uh, basically com- when you're thinking about after something has happened I or occurred. That. Yeah, you knew that. And you you think, oh, it should have been clear from the beginning and and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then confirmation right. yeah. bias is just, you know, you have a theory mm-hmm. about how. Um, and then you look for things. Yeah, and you look for certain things and not others. And right. even when you're confronted with something that's inconsistent with mm-hmm. um, what you thought, you ignore that, you minimize it. And mm-hmm. so, um, so there are all these uh, biases that we have including, you know, this this racial bias yeah. uh, that we want to be aware of. Right. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Professor Eppard Hart. Uh, it's really nice to talk to you. It's, I think the robots should just take over at this point. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be biased in a whole different kind of way. At least it'll seem fairer. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Where can they find you, Jennifer, online and your work? Yeah, so I have a website. Uh, my initials, jleberhart.com uh, is probably the easiest place to find me. And at Stanford, too. At Stanford, yeah. Perfect. You don't have to get your email. Don't okay. worry about it. If you like this episode, don't, please don't. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Brandon McFarland. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.